Hello, and welcome to Maine Golf Talk. We are your hosts, Zach Zonlow and Henry Fall. In these podcasts, we'll be discussing what makes Maine Golf so special. We'll be sharing our own experiences and knowledge as both players and coaches. We'll also branch out to discuss hot topics in the game and chat with special guests to hear their stories. All to keep you in the know and help you improve your game. Let's get into today's podcast. Welcome to another episode of Maine Golf Talk. We are joined by English professional golfer who participated in Ryder Cups at uh, the Open Championship in 67, where he finished tied for third. He is now turned golf course designer, Clive Clark. Clive is most notably known to Mainers in his work designing Belgrade Lakes. Clive, welcome to Maine Golf Talk, and how are you doing today? Thank you. Well, I'm in the desert where we live in the Palm Springs area, about 150 miles inland of Los Angeles. And uh, we've been uh, like everywhere else shut down, but they've just started playing golf again today. And it's a nice sunny day out here. It's actually uh, the, the weather has, uh, the temperature suddenly shot up and we're expecting 100 degrees today, uh, which isn't so bad because humidity boils down to about 10%. So uh, it's uh, more bearable than it sounds. Well, if you want to send some of that temperature our way, we'd uh, gladly appreciate it. We just got three inches, and uh, hopefully the snow will uh, melt quick. We could spare you 20 degrees. That would round us out at a nice 80 today, which would be perfect. That would be perfect golf weather. I think anybody would take that right now. So, Clive, uh, tell us a little bit about growing up in England, and how did you get into the game of golf? I went to the game of golf because I loved sport as a kiddie at school. And by the time I was 12, the problem is, and I used to do a lot of things, roller skating, snooker, table tennis, I liked fishing. Uh, but I, I really liked soccer and I really liked cricket. And the problem is you need 21 others to have a game. And when you've got a six-week school holiday and the Easter holidays, there's really nobody to kick a ball about or bat or bowl a ball. So I thought I'd take up golf or tennis. And it just so happened that golf came along. My parents took me down to the local golf club and I said, yes, we accept junior members, which was terrific. So I went down with my dad at 12 years old to the local sale room and we managed to buy an old set of golf clubs in an old, somewhat tatty and holy uh, canvas bag. And there were niblicks and mashy niblicks and long irons and spoons and brassies. And some of them had hickory shafts and some of them had shafts the like of which I've never seen before. And uh, they were all purchased for about $4. And then I joined the golf club. That was $4 a year for a junior member. And off I went, and I, I, I was just uh, crazy about the game. And in the school holidays, I played three rounds every day. I couldn't wait for the sun to come up. And when the sun went down, I played three rounds of golf. I practiced in between, and now it's dark, so I took my putter home, and I practiced for an hour on the carpet. So you could say I was a golf addict. Uh, later, I joined uh, uh, the local club. was called Scarborough North Cliff, which... Uh, uh, for those people who probably haven't been to uh, that part of the world, it's Scarborough's a seaside resort. It's up on the right-hand side of England. It's coastal, and uh, it, it, it's, it's a jolly nice place. Anyway, I joined uh, Ganton as well, which is a superb championship course built on sand, and that was just nine miles away. So uh, I had the best of both worlds. I just played and practiced and practiced and played and then got into... Uh, local tournaments and county tournaments and my first big trip away was to the British Boys Championship uh, when I was 16 that's under 18 and I got to the final narrowly lost in the 36 hole final and my career budded from there. Wow it's uh three rounds a day that that just hurts my hand just you know listening to that. But listening to it now hurts my mind as well as my hands. <laughs> <laughs> 
So uh, your career started taking off, and then you uh, you went and played in both the amateur championship and the uh, British championship, uh, British amateur championship. Is that correct? Yes, I played uh, my last year as an amateur when I uh, had been uh, 19 when that started. And we have seven national tournaments, and I won four of them, and I was runner-up in the other three. Uh, only Michael Benal, of course, Sir Michael Benal, because he now is who was a great amateur golfer. He, he'd never turned pro, and he won the British amateur five times. Uh, his wife won the English amateur twice and played six Walker Cups. I can't remember how many Michael played. He, he played a heap of uh, Walker Cups and eventually became secretary of the Royal and Ancient for 16 years. So he ran the Open Championship and all the uh, events that the RNA ran, rather similar to the USGA. And uh, I, I've been over to Scotland a few times for this new course we're doing, Belgrade Lakes, which is very close to St Andrews. So uh, Michael lives up there. So I see Michael quite a lot because we were partners in the Walker Cup. And uh, that was in Baltimore. But it was a good uh, good event. I, I, I was just playing very well around in that period and I was uh, undefeated for my four matches in the Walker Cup. That was a great thrill playing at Baltimore, Five Farms Country Club. First time I played in America. Terrific thrill. That's, that's got to be really cool to play uh, you know, the Walker Cup and you know to play alongside somebody that's won so many championships and I mean it sounds like they, they're quite the golf family and uh, across the seas. Um, so you uh, you play in the amateur events and then you turn professional. Tell us about. I signed with Slazengers. Uh, they sent, they gave me a round the world ticket and they signed me up. I had a contract with them. So I got some money, which is always a good start when you're turning pro. And I got an invitation from one of the uh, older, uh, retired top Australian players, Norman Bonita, to go and stay with him for three months in Sydney which I did, and he helped me in my game. He was a great player in his day, won 48 professional events, mainly in Britain and Australia. He won the Australian Open three times. And uh, that was great. Um, and actually, uh, previous to that, I'd met him. I played at Sunningdale um, for many, well, I still am associated with Sunningdale, but uh, he said to me one day, <laughs> he said, and I'm an 18-year-old amateur at this point. He's my first game with him, and when we walked off the 18th green, he said, have you ever played with any great players, uh, professionals? And I said, well, I've been able, because I'm playing off plus one, they'll let you enter a PGA Tour event in Europe. And I've played in three of those, um, but you know, I never got to play with the very best players on the tour. And he said, are you playing in the Open? this year at Royal Birkdale, and I said, uh, yes, I've entered. He said, would you like a practice round with Bruce Devlin, who was winning a lot of stuff in America, then a great Australian player? And I said, oh, that would be fantastic. He said, I'll give you a call in a couple of weeks. Well, about a week went by, and Norman Von Nieder was on the phone. Remember that game with uh, Bruce Devlin? I said, yes, in eager anticipation thinking he's probably going to say, well, it's off, Bruce isn't playing in the Open this year, or he's scratched or whatever. He said, well, I fixed it up for the Tuesday of the Open. I said, that's amazing. He, he said, as a matter of fact, I've made up the four-ball. Really? I said, uh, who are we playing with? He said, a guy called Nicholas and another guy called Palmer. Well, you're an 18-year-old amateur. <laughs> I mean, I just about fell off the chair. And the game happened, we played, which was wonderful, terrific experience. And you know, if anybody says, was you nervous, were you nervous? I would say, you bet I was nervous, but I had won the first three national amateur tournaments before the Open, so I had a little bit of confidence, but it's one thing winning amateur tournaments, it's another thing playing with three of the greatest players in the world. But it's a great experience. Yeah, that sounds incredible. I mean, I think anybody would, uh would uh say that they would want to play with nicholas and devlin and palmer i mean that's that's quite the uh the foursome right there so uh you play in the open championship in 67 you know we we're talking about jack nicholas and you actually got to play with him in the final round of the 67 open at hoylake 
Uh, talk about uh, nerves there. That's, uh, that's quite the experience. Again, I was having a very good week. I played both my practice rounds with Gary Player and I shot 67-66 in practice round uh, Hoylake. And then we teed up and after three rounds, I was lying fourth and Jack Nicholas was uh, lying third. So we played the last round. And I had a horrific start, whether nerves overcame me or watching the power of his game, but I started 6-5-5, so four shots have pretty much gone away, just like that. And I continued to play very poorly, having played very well all week. It felt like I chipped and putted, pitched and putted every green for just to have a whole string of pars. And I figured with five holes to play, you know what's causing the problem here? I'm getting into his rhythm. I'm, he's taking me out of my rhythm. So I stopped watching him. I turned my back on the last five holes and slowed down and I finished with three three under for the last five uh, and shot 72 on a windy day starting 655 which I think is one of the best rounds not the lowest by a long way but one of the best rounds I've ever played yeah that's that's incredible I'll just tell you one thing about Jack Nicholas he's a great gentleman and on the first hole I, I'm putting for a six from five feet and the crowd and the gallery are all moving on to the next tee because they want to see Jack drive. And Jack held his hands up in a loud voice said, ladies and gentlemen, will you please stand still? My partner still has to hold out. Now, that's a gentleman. That, that is quite the gentleman. Uh, you don't really see that often. And, you know, that's, that's who Jack Nicholas was. You know, he cared mm. about everybody. Then strangely, I played with him, that was 67-70, the year he won. Coincidentally, he was lying third after two rounds and I was lying fourth. So we got to play again. That's the third game I've had with him in five years, which was terrific because in Britain, you didn't see Jack Nicholas and Arnold Palmer and co playing all that much. They played in the Open and they played in the World Match Play, which was eight players at the end of the year. Um, but anyway, we went on the first tee and our prime minister was standing on the first tee at, on the old course. And um, we went over and we introduced uh, to uh, Edward Heath, who was then the prime minister. He had the habit of every time he's laughed, he's, his shoulders went up and down. <laughs> he was quite, quite famous for it, but uh, he, he's a great gentleman. And um, Nicholas said to him, I'd like to thank you, Mr. Prime Minister, for coming up to St. Andrews to watch us play golf. And he replied, well, I dare say I'm doing a lot more good here than I would be at 10 Downing Street. <laughs> so we had a nice game. And just talking about that round, uh, we both made par on the first hole and we're walking to the second tee. And Jack said to me, you know what? I've now played 37 holes and I haven't had a bogey. And the golfing gods were looking down and he immediately three-putted the second green for a bogey. It's, it's a funny old game, isn't it? Even, even to someone as great as Nicholas, it, uh, it happens. It, it really does. You, ne you never know. Um, so you played with Nicholas a couple times and then uh, tell us about your experience at the Ryder Cup. Uh, Ryder Cup can make you very nervous because uh, basically there's nowhere to hide. You know, if you're not playing well in a golf, a professional golf event, uh, there's 150 other players there. So you don't play well. A lot of players don't play well, but it, it's spotlight on. Um, and I was a little unfortunate in the sense uh, the practice rounds were going pretty well. Uh, there was the older O'Connor, Christy O'Connor, senior in our team. And uh, the last practice round I had, Peter Butler was always my partner because we played together in the four ball championships and we won it and we were runners up. And we, you know, we just played well together because Peter Butler, who not many people would know in the States, but he played on half a dozen Ryder Cup teams, very good player. 
place straight, good short game. Uh, while he was such a great partner for me, let's say I knocked it out of bounds, Peter would just smile and say, don't worry, partner, I'll get the birdie. Uh, what a great attitude. In fact, I used to say he smiled so much that he had sunburnt teeth. <laughs> he was a wonderful guy. Um, unfortunately, Bernard Gallagher, the night before the Ryder Cup started, made an unwise choice and had oysters for dinner. So he wasn't well enough to play and our captain changed over a couple of pairings. So uh, I had the mad Irishman, Eddie Pollan, to play with, who I'd never played golf with before. Now, it wasn't serious because we didn't have a tough draw. We only had the current Open champion, Tom Weisskopf, and Jack Nichols to play against. It was uh, nothing, nothing serious, nothing serious. <laughs> anyway, um, it's a long story and I could go on with it, but um, eventually, actually we played quite well, apart from Pollen going out of bounds on the first and leaving me solo in the four ball, but um, we lost three and two. Uh, I was, I was heading for a 70, which ran Muirfield on a you know, breezy day with rough but knee high and narrow fairways. You know, very good score, you'd take it every day. But uh, Weisskopf had four, four for 67, and Jack had a four, four for 66. We lost three and two. So um, yeah, happy days, because it's a, uh, I would have been in two previous Ryder Cups, but for five years from turning pro, in those days, you couldn't accept Ryder Cup points. So I would have, uh, the year I finished third in the Open and finished third in the uh, money list in Europe, I got, as the French say, zero point. And a couple of years uh, later, um, I had the same deal. I won two tournaments that year, but zero point. Anyway, they're, you know, they're great days and it's a wonderful event. Um, I, I think everybody gets a little bit nervous teeing up in that. Yeah, I got to imagine. Uh, Clive, what, was, what were the best parts of your game uh, back in those days? I've always been a good driver. And probably until I'm a year or three or four over 70 at the moment, but I feel good and I'm reasonably uh, fit and have energy. Um, I still playing quite well into my early 70s, not to play in tournaments, but, you know, I knock it under par probably as many times as over par, which is uh, pretty good. Now with my new Scottish project, uh, which I'm also uh, very involved with the running of the project, as well as the design of the golf course and the supervision during construction, I spent uh, uh, four and a half months living very close to the site. Uh, the course is called Dumbani Link. Uh, the people who've been to see it have been uh, full of praise and very positive. So we're uh, hoping rather like Belgrade Lakes, it sort of shot into prominence. Uh, and uh, we're hoping that'll uh, uh, be the same. Because links, there aren't many links courses in the world. There are about 34,000 golf courses in the world, but there are only about 250 links golf courses uh, and of those you know they're not all five stars some are one star in value some are two three uh, there are only about 40 really great links in the entire world so it's a rare beast and it's been around for a long long time um, evidence the old course at St Andrews which is over 600 years old uh, that's quite old so, yeah, it, sound, it sounds like a great project there. Yeah, well, we're at, we, we've got a few things going for us, like a mile and a half of water slash beachfront, <laughs> genuine links land, which we have to uh, build. It, it's very sandy, right by the sea. Um, but we have to create the dunes and we moved a lot of dirt and that was uh, built in the summer of 18, and then we've been growing it in, and it was quite playable in the last half of last summer. We didn't open it, but it's, it's playable. I played it uh, half a dozen times or more. Um, and the feature there is it, it's got a lot of uh, risk and reward holes, 
which kind of tempts you to go one way. There's some twin fairways, but this fairway on the right, let's say the fifth hole is 50 yards wide. And then the direct route is 25 yards on a separate fairway wide, 25 yards wide. So, and you've got bunkers and those nasty little pot bunkers on either side of the fairway. In so when I first played it, I tried two balls. It was a drive and a four iron going the long way around and the safe way around. It was a drive and a nine iron going into that tiny little gap. And <laughs> there's quite a lot of that going on also with, um, with the par fours. Now it's very difficult as a designer because of the length of golf courses today to get short par fours into the scene that are what I call drivable under the right conditions or the right tee or depending on how far you hit it and where the wind is. We've got three. And, but to get there, it's not just a question of it's drivable. You've got to take the risk of going over maybe long, rough, hot bunkers, uh, one hole. We have an old 300 year old Scottish wall, which you either, there's two fairways. So you go for the green and the prevailing wind is following, but there's nine nasty, gnarly little revetted pot bunkers in the way. If you go straight for the green, that's over the wall, straight for the green. Otherwise you go to the left of the wall and there's a totally separate fairway there. So I would probably be playing a drive and a nine iron, the one way, or go for the green. It's drivable. I drove it a few times. It's about, depending on which tee you play off, but off the further back tees, it's about 280 and you get a bit of following wind. Um, and that to me adds the, a lot to the charm and the movement that we've got at Belgrade Lakes in, in the fairways, the way they move or they dog leg or they meander between, you know, the beautiful trees and the, the boulders, which were pretty much wall to wall under the trees when we started. So Clive, uh, you know, talk us through Belgrade, you know, how did, uh, how did you get selected to design that. I mean, that's your first American design course. So how did, uh, how did you get involved with that? Very important, your first golf course, because now I'm living in America. Uh, I was introduced to it by a dear friend, Eddie Gore. And Eddie lives in Augusta in the summer. And in the winter, he lives out here in the Palm Springs area. So I play golf with Eddie a lot. And he's a great character. He's a substantial businessman in uh, Maine. And um, he knew of the course and he knew Harold Alfont was behind it of uh, Dexter Shoes. And uh, he recommended to Harold Alfont that he take a look at Clive Clark as a designer. And there have been quite a few top designers over a year or two had been making overtures to come and design their golf course and anyway they asked me if i had any ideas on it and uh, i said yes so i spent about three or four weeks putting together i had the topographical i had the vegetation plan and so i actually did them a, a layout and some bunkers in there and i, I also uh, I can sketch quite well. So I put some red dots. So if you stood here halfway down the first, this is how the golf course would look. And then sketch with the trees and bunkers and, and everything shown in. And I'm reasonably good at sketching, having had training in that area. In fact, I was training to be an architect before to do buildings before I turned pro. So I can draw plans. Um, so anyway, I took, they said, well, why don't you come over and present it to us? So I came over and it was January, nice and warm, about 10 or 12 below. <laughs> I've never seen anything like it. I arrived and, and I had three cashmere sweaters. I had my set of Gore-Tex waterproofs. And they looked at me and they said, you'll never survive out there in just that. And they put me in one of these big boiler jackets with woolly hats and gloves up to my armpits and out we went and there was about two feet of snow and uh, anyway they they liked what i'd drawn they liked my explanations they liked the layout and they they 
said you're appointed. So off we went. It was quite a long job because one of the main problems there underneath this glorious 240 acres of trees were boulders, boulders, more boulders. I mean, they were, they were wall to wall, they were touching. And the, tr the tree clearing is less of a problem. So we, we clear the trees, but now we're left with just boulder fields on practically every hole. And we're having a long discussion as to how we are going to get rid of the boulders on the fairway and semi rough. We can leave them outside of that. And they're very beautiful too. And there was the eight bulldozer sitting in a meeting with the engineers, Charlie. And Charlie was always seen sucking a straw. And he's sitting at the back of the room and we've been discussing this for about 20 minutes, half an hour. And Charlie took the straw out of his mouth in a loud voice said, Moving boulders is like eating biscuits. You eat them one at a time. <laughs> so the boulders literally were picked up with big backhoes and loaded onto dumper trucks and scooted back into semi out of play areas. And they really, so from the, eventually from the fairways you went, which are um, very fine bent grass to bluegrass semi-rough to the boulders and then to the trees it, it gave a wonderful set of filters building up up the hillside so it, it, it was very attractive but we had to move them and our other um, problem and i'm working with kyle evans on the project who was a very very good superintendent who became a partner and he's president of the club he he ran the project and as a designer he was just terrific to work with. We, we really got on very well together. And between us, we made the decisions. And Harold Alfont, who had a major stake in it, would come down from time to time, week to weeks, and have a ride round and was enjoying it. And Harold Alfont got us the permit, which was quite interesting because. I can't remember who your governor was then, but we knew him quite well. And Harold Alfont has done a huge amount for Maine in terms of charity workers. I'm sure a lot of people who live in Maine know his name. So Harold Alfont was actually 83 at that point. When he went to see the governor and he said, you know what? He said, I'm going to do a golf course. I'm 83 and I want to play it. So can we get a permit fairly quickly? <laughs> and we did. Um, which was great and it's been a wonderful asset I think to the area and people love playing it. Uh, we did have one, the, the, the other, um, there's always bumps in the road when you're doing a golf course, you're out there constructing for quite a long time and of course this took even more time than most because you had to clear all the boulders which is a, as Charlie said it's a light eating biscuits, you move them one at a time. And uh, we moved some, buried some, but when we got down to seeding, we're in the middle of summer and there was a huge electric storm. And half of our seed ended up in New Hampshire, I think, down the road. It, it really blew a lot of seed away. And we'd only seeded two or three holes. And Harold Elfont said, tell you what, sod it. So we did. Um, and there were these huge, bales of sod which were driven in I think from uh, uh, they were about a four mile four hour drive truckfuls we had a team of people who were like big Swiss rolls rolling these sods out and it's kind of instant golf it's, I mean it's an expensive way of doing it but it solves the problem if we had another electrical storm that sod was going to stay there which was great yeah, that's, that's great that you guys could do that. And I mean, we've always heard stories about how they would just roll sod out. And, you know, I, I never knew about the, uh, the seed getting blown away, which uh, that's interesting. That's what caused it, yeah. So uh, when, when you were originally designing it, you know, we've talked, Henry and I have talked about 9 and, 10, nine and 18. I mean, that's, that's incredible coming up, you know, finishing on both nines. On 18 and 9, did you adapt to that, or was that originally part of the design with the double green? 
No, it was all really part of the original design. I don't think the actual um, first design actually changed very much. And as a designer, I'm, it doesn't matter changing it on paper. Of course, I changed things on paper. Um, you know, we've had various interruptions where you've got a layout and you think you're going to do it and you've got all the topographicals and the grading plans drawn and then the archaeologists walk in and say you can't do that there yeah this bit's protected so now sometimes you have to move a couple of holes as happened to our project in Scotland and but it, it always has a knock-on effect you end up altering six holes not two they've all got to obviously join in and flow and be part of the layout um, yeah, I, I, you see, what's really nice about Belgrade Lakes, among many other things, is the fact that the clubhouse is elevated. So you're probably 50 or 60 feet above the 9th and 18th green. It's the highest point on the whole site. So from the deck there, you get a beautiful view back over the double green, and both holes come in towards you. And, you know, they're pretty strong par, par fours. In fact, nine is uh, quite a difficult hole. It's uh, left to right dog leg. Um, you've got the stacked boulders on the left. You've got some forest on the right. You know, there's plenty of room, but it just looks a little more intimidating. And it, it's nice to have odd holes that give you some relief. It's, it's the easiest thing in the world to design a very easy golf course. It's the easiest thing in the world to design a very difficult golf course. But getting the balance right is a little more difficult. And that is really the key that you don't, in my book anyway, I, I don't design uh, courses that intimidate the golfer. You're, you're out to enjoy the experience. And, you know, golf is a, we all know it's a very difficult game, whether you're 24 handicap or the scratch player or professional. Golf is difficult and it can turn around and throw a custard pie straight in your face just like that in a heartbeat and i used to say a few years ago when tiger wasn't playing very well people would say yeah, you find golf difficult i say yeah, never mind me you ask tiger if it's a difficult game um even greater player as he was he, he lost it for a while and thank goodness he's come back again but uh, so you know, I, I think uh, there's some expression I can't think of. Let the something see the rabbit. Golfers um, want to go out there. And they, Peter Alice, uh, the great commentator, who um, I used to work with him for 18 years on BBC TV commentating. And Peter, Peter used to say, I've never heard of anybody coming in from around a golf and say, oh, I really enjoyed that. I had a great time. I lost seven balls and three putted six greens. It doesn't happen. People don't like being punished. It's not enjoyable. So, yeah, give everybody a fair chance and let them enjoy it, but equally feature it. So, as I said, some holes and think, yeah, this is like climbing Everest. But in fact, when they come out to the next peak, they haven't climbed Everest, they've just climbed through the foothills of Tibet, but maybe they think they have, it's an, it's an illusion. And you can have an odd green here or there that has a few uh, uh, slopey parts in it, but um, as I say on the whole, people don't want a three putt every day and four putt, it's, it's, it's no fun. When you first walked the land for Belgrade Lakes, did you, did you know that you were going to have that first tee shot? down the hill there overlooking the lakes? Well, I did because I'd spent four weeks doing layouts. And I, you see, once you've got the topographical and you know where the vegetation is, you can pretty near design the golf course. I don't say you can design it out. I mean, it's nearly impossible without being at the site. But you, you, you could, you, generally you start with just a layout. So you know where the back tee is, you know where the landing area is off the back tee and you know where the green is. And, and that's part of the key. You, you've got to have a solid layout that's going to work and good visibility. And equally, you, you know, you don't want to be going over 
convex hills where you have to move half a main in order to see the fairway on the green. Um, and um, uh, Kyle, Kyle Evans liked the layout I did initially, which was helpful. Um, so yeah, I did know where the first tee, and I like elevated, and of course, the first tee is wonderfully elevated. Um, you're very lucky if you can find that naturally, because some of the courses I've worked on or, or designed 30, 36 golf courses now, and I've been in the business a long time, uh, getting on for 30 years, in fact. Yeah, if we can just talk briefly about some of your other designs, yeah, too. Yeah. Probably wouldn't like it as much because you, you need to gain experience. Um, but I think being artistic, being able to draw, being having been to architectural college and worked in an architect's office for a short time, if you can draw, you, you have a big start on designing because if you can't draw, how do you design? Uh, it, it's not easy. You have to have people who can come in and do the drawing for you, but there's nothing like doing it yourself because your vision is in the mind and you've got to get it on the paper. And to do it via somebody is less easy. So uh, just briefly on some of the other courses you've designed too, um, I've seen a lot of pictures of Indian Wells. That that course just looks uh, just beautiful. And they hosted the, the Skins game uh, back in the day there, correct? With uh, like Annika Sorenstam and, and Phil Mickelson and uh, Fred Couples. I know that was a, that was a pretty cool event. But um, do you have like a favorite region or, or country that you like to, to uh, design in? Uh, ideally, the one a mile down the road works very well. <laughs> um, I enjoy them all. It, it, it's, it's a bit like, uh, no matter where it is, where it's located, it's a bit like a, a jigsaw puzzle, putting it all together. And, you know, if you ask me once we've got a layout together, where are the bunkers going or other features, streams or knolls or bar. I wouldn't know at that stage because I haven't got there. It's a process. You start at A and you get to Z. And I, know, I might know at A where B and C is going, but um, nowhere nearing getting in. You know, I've been very fortunate that uh, I started off in England with Peter Alice as my partner and we did 20 odd golf courses together. Um, and now uh, living in the desert, for instance, within a few miles of where I live, I've done five golf courses. Uh, and that's totally different. Uh, the desert here in the Palm Springs area is just very flat. And it's being a desert, it's on sand. It's easy to move the sand. So like the Hideaway Golf Course, which is just down the road from where I'm sitting, uh, we... Uh, we had the opportunity to move a lot of dirt. We moved over two million yards of dirt. And it's a high-end uh, golf and residential development. And Pete Dye did one course, I did the other. And uh, basically I built valleys. So the fairways run through valleys and the whole thing was just pan flat. There was nothing there, no trees, bit of, um, um, what do they call it? Um, it's like a burnt out grass that sort of rolls about the place eventually in the breeze. But uh, it's just flat sand. But now it's nothing like flat sand. Uh, and you can add colour because the desert, of course, uh, has some beautiful weather through the winter. It's gorgeous. And things grow that are colourful. And you can introduce water and lakes and babbling brooks and waterfalls. So it's, uh, if, if you will, it's man-made. It's... Uh, kind of Disneyland, but uh, it, it looks very pretty. And uh, people love coming to this valley. There are 125 golf courses in this 25 mile long valley, and it's about seven, eight miles wide. Lots for several million dollars, and it's a quarter million dollars to join. There's a whole gamut of everything. But it's, uh, it's a beautiful place to play because for six, seven months of the year, the weather is pretty much perfect. Uh, it must be, I mean, did it feel like it kind of came full circle when you, you know, you started working a little bit with Jack Nicholas on designs? 
yes, we had um, we had a chat because after 2008, you know, the whole economy, as you know, went over the waterfall and everything was, um, you know, there were no jobs. Um, Jack invited me over to his office in Florida. Uh, I had a chat with him and, you know, you get odd sort of things that come in from Italy or goodness knows where in the world and, you know, they, they wouldn't know my name down there. So I, you know, suggested that if anything materialised, um, you know, there might be a possibility of doing this together, which Jack was very amenable to. So I spent a very nice day with him in his offices in Florida. And again, I would say he's a great gentleman, you see. He's never put a foot wrong in golf. Apart from his eight, 18 majors, he's just behaved immaculately, as did Arnold Palmer. There's, there's, they're not controversial characters. They're just, they, they give to the game. And they, and Gary Player as well, and a lot of other, Lee Trevino, a lot of you know, top players have just been great sportsmen and terrific for the game of golf, which... You know, I've always been crazy about golf all my life. Yeah, it's great to see that, you know, you and, and you mentioned Tom Weiskopf earlier too. He's he's become a great designer as well. And and obviously Nicholas, it's uh it's cool to see it come sort of full circle like that and and give back to the game and design these incredible courses. So I know we're appreciative of it. So, um, but we do have one little section left, Clive, for you. We call this the Wicked Fire Round. Uh, just some quick questions. Uh, if you need to take a second, that's fine. But we'll we'll start it off. Uh, your favorite three golf course designs outside of your own? Uh, they're pretty standard, actually. Um, I would say uh, uh, Cypress, Pine Valley. Augusta. Your but favorite? I put out in the Lynx course as well, because there are a lot of good Lynx courses. But yeah. Actually, the old, I, I, I love playing the old course at St. Andrews. It, it, it's what I like about it. It's so quirky. You would never actually design a golf course like that. They might shoot you <laughs> if you did. But, but it, it's so unusual, the different shots and holes like 17. You know, with that dust little bunker on the left and a slim little green and a road just off to the right and behind <laughs> such a difficult shot <laughs> and then yeah. you get almost like the, the first and 18th not one bunker in sight and yet that does terrific holes and you, you feel you're finishing down the high street of uh, the town St Andrews it, it, it's all quite amazing it's a gem yeah, we had we had Mike Bender on last week, and he he mentioned how Zach Johnson, he said he he hated St Andrews, like going into the Open Championship that he ended up winning, and then after the fact, of course, he loves the course now. So it's funny how that that happens, I guess. But uh, funny story actually, I was playing with, a, and uh, he's a member of the RNA, and he got a two o'clock starting time, so we had a bit of lunch. Uh, we go on the first tee and they paired us up with two very nice Americans, younger, well, younger, young to me, they were in their 40s probably. And uh, they said, oh, this is great, you know, we're from America. And I play off three, said the one, and the other one said, yeah, I'm six handicap. And my partner was about six and they didn't ask about me. And they said, this is, this is terrific. They said, we can have a Ryder Cup match. So my partner said, oh, great, we'll do that. Yeah, you know, what do you want to play for? So, <laughs> so we, they actually played very well. We beat them on the 17th green. And, and they, they, they said, that was such a great match. They said, uh, handing over their money, imagine the four of us pretending to be Ryder Cup players, at which point my partner said, he is a Ryder Cup player. <laughs> they laughed. They were rolling on the green laughing about it. That's great. All right, your, uh, your favorite hole at Belgrade Lakes. Oh, boy. It's like having 18 children, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, gosh. I like... Uh, I mean, I'd like to say they're a very, very good collection of 18 holes. 
Oh, we agree. Uh, I'm sure Kyle Evans would back me up on that. But uh, I, I think nine is just an interesting hole because if you're playing it as a low handicap or pro, you, you probably want to hit a little draw on the tee shot. And then it's a very imposing with the big bank at the back of the green. And the green, as you know, is raised. And to get on the 18th green, it's, it's, a, it's a long way left to where nine green, although it's part of the same green, it's huge. But um, yeah, it's, uh, you, you've got that imposing 50, 60 foot bank of bracken and color in the autumn at the back. And then the, the, the old clubhouse, which is actually wonderful. If, if Belgrade Lake's clubhouse became a, a 40,000 foot gin palace, it wouldn't somehow look the same. It's houses, yeah, creeks a bit, and it, it's, it, it's from an era. But I mean, that's part of the tradition of the place. I, I think it's absolutely wonderful. And, and when I get that view, looking from the second shot up, it, it, it's, it's spellbinding. It's, uh, it's a bit of magic. It's not me as the designer, it's just it. It, yeah. it, it works. Yeah, those views on nine and eighteen are are extraordinary. Um, if you were to, to if you were to design a golf course best suited for your game, would all the holes be straight, dog legs left, dog legs right, or would you have a mix of them? I think we'd start with the hundred yard wide fairways. <laughs> I thought you said you were you said you were a great driver of the ball. <laughs> Yeah, well, now I'm down a bit. Uh, I just used to hit the ball. I didn't. I could shape it either way when I was playing professionally. Um, now I think as you get a little older, a little more inclined, you don't turn quite as well, so you come over the ball a little bit. So I hit a slow fade, but that's a pretty safe shot. Um, yeah, I, I think what I enjoy is a golf course with personality to play. You know, you can play a thousand golf courses that don't have personnel. And they're still fun to play, but they don't ask you questions. So my quick answer would be a golf course that asks me questions. I've got to think a little bit as well as execute. I love it. And uh, what is your favorite soccer club? Um, whichever one Messi is playing for. Uh, oh, okay. Barcelona, but I like watching. Uh, he is a great artist. And it, oh, what intrigues me about Messi, who is acknowledged pretty much as the best soccer player in the world, you can throw in Ronaldo, who's also a great player. But I like Messi because when you look at him, he's got shorts that are slightly long. He's not very tall. He's about five foot seven or eight. He... He sort of just looks like he's probably not going to make it to the other end of the pitch while he's waiting for the ball to come. He looks a bit like the interior decorator who's doing painting your house next door. And suddenly the ball comes and he bursts into life and he goes, he goes through defenders like a hot knife through butter. And there was a commentator the other day from the north of England and Messi went through four defenders. Just like that, the ball had come, blah, 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 blah. It just happened so quickly. And he said, there's Messi. He said, uh, just look at him. It's like he was in a telephone kiosk with four others, and he came out the door, and they all had to check their kneecaps to see they were pointing the right way. <laughs> That's Messi, he's a genius. As Federer, I can't stop watching Federer play tennis. Then there's a new uh, uh, close-up magician called Shin Lim. Uh, it's, it's just amazing. But you just suddenly get someone in life who stands out, like, say, an Arnold Palmer or a Tiger Woods. They're just different. They are. I mean, you, you nailed it right on the head there with uh, with Messi. I mean, watching him, he's, he's a magician out there. And, you know, Ronaldo's great and he can finish, but there's nothing like seeing a little tiny Messi just come out of nowhere and you know he's he's got so much skill and his feet are so quick it's it's impressive to watch that's for sure sure is 
Well, Clive, we, uh, we're going to end it here. We appreciate you taking the, uh, the time today to talk with us. Um, we thoroughly enjoyed this and, you know, hopefully, uh, we can have you on again, uh, maybe next year, you know, 150th, uh, opens at St. Andrews. We'd love to talk to you some more about, yeah, uh, anytime you want to happy to do it. Sorry. Sorry. My answers get so long, but as you get older in life, your answers get longer and your actually your ears get longer and your drives get shorter. That's the problem. <laughs> hey, we, we appreciate it. We love, we love these sound bites. I mean, you, you throw some, some, uh, some really good ones in there and, uh, um, you know, if, uh, if people wanted to find out more about your design work, uh, where do they, uh, where do they go? It's the Clive Clark design, um, which is quite a, like my talking, it's quite comprehensive. It'll take a little while to read. <laughs> Clive Clark design, just look at that. Perfect. Well, uh, uh, Clive... some of the other courses I've done, which are you know, in great contrast to Belgrade Lakes, uh, the designs in the desert. It's a totally different sort of look, clearly. But, uh, they're both delightful, but, you know, it's like if you're looking at the top range of cars, let's say, you know, Ferrari, it, it's, and that's the same with golf courses. The Lynx is very different from an inland course or a meadow course or a tree-lined course. And that's part of the fun, I think, for golfers to go around and absorb all the different landscape and features it's, uh, it's a wonderful game it, it really is and there's so many options and uh you know even just looking at your designs in america there's so many you know variety to each of them and hopefully we can get out to uh to play your other ones across the sea there but yeah. uh gotta have a look at dumbani links that's uh, that's one of the very special ones i've done along with belgrade lake Give my best to Kyle Evans. We will. He's. Uh, I think he's. I think he's still kicking around here. Well, that's a. Uh, that's another episode of Main Golf Talk. We uh, we appreciate Clive for coming on, and we will see you guys next time. Mm-hmm.